When Rachel Timmerman wrote to her family that she and her young daughter were starting over with a new man in Little Rock, they initially accepted it. But things were not as they seemed, and the investigation into what really happened has continued for 20 years. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crime Lines. This episode is going to come out right after I get back from Atlanta, though obviously as I'm recording it, I haven't been there yet. So I'll just assume we had a terrific time, phenomenal turnout, and it was just so great meeting people. I've been asked on social media when the 12 Days of Crime Lines is starting, and it will be the 14th through the 25th with Patreon and Apple subscribers getting a baker's dozen with an extra episode released on the 26th. Then I'm going to take a short break and I'll be back mid-January. I usually do an end-of-year Q&A episode, but I'm not sure how interesting those are after having done them for a couple of years. I've already answered probably most questions people have, so a year-in-review kind of episode is to be decided. But let's go ahead and get into today's case, which has a lot of issues and some complex elements, so I'll do my best to present it in a way that makes sense. But I do want to give a quick warning that this case is a bit more graphic than what I usually cover in some places, and it does include a sexual assault, and it involves multiple victims, including a child. You know you, and if this is something you are in the mindset to listen to or not. This case takes place in Nuego County, Michigan, and at the center is a young mother named Rachel Timmerman. She was born in Grand Rapids, Michigan in 1978. Her parents were pretty young when they had her in their early 20s, and at some point they split up. Rachel lived with her mother, and in her early teens, a social worker named Jackie became involved in her life. Probably for the family's privacy, it's not been said how or why she got involved. Regardless, Jackie tried to help counsel Rachel through her teen years. According to what Jackie told the TV show FBI Criminal Pursuit, Rachel's mother did not provide her with the things she needed, physically or emotionally, leaving Rachel to figure things out on her own. Her attendance at school was poor, in part because she didn't always have the appropriate clothing to wear. As a teen, Rachel started partying and using drugs recreationally until she got pregnant at 17. Jackie, the social worker, said it was like a switch flipped for Rachel, and she started working hard to turn things around because now she had a reason to. When someone has low self-worth, it's hard for them to make things better for themselves, because who are they to deserve a stable life? But Rachel valued this baby she was about to have, and she knew that she deserved the best. At the core, Rachel was a warm and loving person, and now she had someone to love and someone who would love her back. Rachel's daughter, Shannon Verheg, was born in mid-June 1996, to the delight of literally everyone. Shannon was a happy baby with those big, round, chubby cheeks. She didn't fuss a lot. And she shared her time between Rachel and her father's family. On August 6, 1996, Rachel, who was 18 at the time, was home with Shannon, who was not quite two months old. 
Someone Rachel knew from school, Mike Gabrion, came by with his uncle Marvin and a family friend named Wayne Davis. I believe Rachel knew Wayne, but she did not know Marvin at all. They invited Rachel to come over and play cards. A night out sounded like fun after being home with a baby for several weeks, and Rachel's sister Sarah offered to babysit while she went out for a couple of hours. After the baby was in bed, Sarah fell asleep. The next thing she knew, she woke up to voices yelling. She looked up and saw Rachel standing there holding a hammer. Rachel was crying and bleeding from an injury to her face. She was yelling at someone to leave as that person was banging on the door and saying that Rachel would pay for what she did. The man yelling eventually left, and Rachel said it was Marvin Gabrion, Mike's uncle. She then told her sister what had happened that night. She said she was playing cards with Wayne, Marvin, and Mike when they decided to leave to go do a beer run. All of them decided to go. Marvin drove and then suddenly stopped, ordering Mike and Wayne out of the car. He kept driving with Rachel, alone, took her to a remote area, and raped her. The source of the injury to her face was where he had bit her on the nose. Afterwards, he told Rachel, that if she went to the police, he would kill her, but not before first killing her baby in front of her. Rachel told both her mother and her sister that she did not doubt these threats, and she wasn't sure she was going to report it. She later called Jackie, the social worker, and just told her that something horrible had happened and she needed her. Jackie raced over there, heard what happened, and encouraged Rachel to go to the hospital. She knew Rachel wouldn't, for her own sake, do this, but she knew that this guy was going to do it again and again until he was stopped, and that is what convinced Rachel to report it. The detective that arrived at the hospital to take her statement noticed that Rachel was absolutely terrified of Marvin Gabrion. After taking Rachel's report, The detective called Marvin, and he said he would come to the station to make a statement. But then he didn't show. Instead, he faxed over a five-page handwritten version of what happened that night. And here is where it gets a little graphic, though if it's any consolation, it's all lies. According to Marvin, it was Rachel's idea to make the other guys get out of the car, because she promised to give him oral sex. Afterwards, Marvin said that Rachel then took his ejaculate and put it in her vagina for no reason. Then she said she wanted to have intercourse, and he turned her down. It was when they were trying to leave the area they had gone that the car got stuck in the mud, and she helped push it out, and that's how she got hurt. He then took her home, and she started yelling at him out of nowhere when she realized she had injured her nose. That was Marvin's story, and obviously no one believed this. He was just coming up with these odd explanations for all of the evidence he knew would be there. The police spoke with Mike and Wayne, and at least Wayne backed up Rachel's story about Marvin having ordered them out of the car. The investigation into Rachel's accusations against Marvin lasted two months, 
before Marvin was charged with third-degree criminal sexual conduct. Marvin was a bit transient, so it took about three months before the police found him, and he was arrested on January 20th, 1997. On February 3rd, just two weeks after his arrest, Marvin was bailed out. At the time Marvin was released, Rachel was actually in jail herself for a probation violation. This had stemmed from a previous minor drug offense. While Rachel was locked up, Shannon lived with her paternal grandparents until Rachel could get out, get things settled, and get back on her feet. She was released on May 5th. Over the next month, Rachel tried to get on with her life. She was moving from her mom's place into her dad's place near Cedar Springs, Michigan, in order to get away from some of the bad influences in her life that she had grown up with. She got a job, and she started making plans for Shannon to move back in with her full-time. Rachel was talking about going back to school so she could get a better-paying job in the future. Though those things were going very well for Rachel, the rape case against Marvin Gabrion was still hanging over her. Twice, Rachel saw Marvin while out and about, and both times she panicked. She called the sheriff's office and said she was afraid he was going to kill her. The legal case against him was moving slowly, primarily because Marvin delayed things by hiring and then firing lawyers. Finally, his newest attorney requested a new preliminary hearing, and Rachel would have to testify for that in front of the judge on June 5, 1997. Though that date was looming, Rachel was doing her best to keep her head up and focus on the future. A man she had met at work named John had been calling her and flirting. He eventually asked her out to dinner. Rachel was flattered, and even more so when he said that he would love to meet Shannon. He was not put off by her being the mom to an 11-month-old. In fact, he suggested she take Shannon with them to dinner when they went out on Tuesday, June 3, 1997. Rachel got herself and Shannon ready for the state and said goodbye to her father and sister. She said she'd be back in probably about two hours. But Rachel and Shannon did not come home. The next day, a letter arrived in the mail from Rachel. Rachel was known to write her father letters when she didn't live with him, so it didn't seem strange on the surface. The letter was handwritten, and it was definitely Rachel's handwriting. It said that she had met the man of her dreams, and she was going to run off and elope. She would have called to say goodbye and tell them, but she was afraid they would try to talk her out of it. She said she would be gone for a few weeks and would write with her address once they settled down. She didn't send a letter to Kim Verhaeg, which was Shannon's grandmother who had been taking care of her. So when Shannon wasn't brought back to her home like she anticipated, she called Rachel's dad. He told her what the letter said, and Kim thought it was very out of character for Rachel. Not that she wasn't young and free-spirited and prone to impulsivity. All of that was true. It's that Kim couldn't imagine a situation where Rachel would take Shannon so abruptly out of everyone's lives. Rachel's family, though, were not initially worried. 
The letter, like I said, was in Rachel's handwriting, and the wording and everything about it sounded like her. So while they were not thrilled that she impulsively ran off with some guy after the first date, they decided to wait until she got back in touch to hash it all out. The day after the letter arrived, so two days after the date, was the hearing for the rape charges, and Rachel didn't show. The prosecutor was not surprised by this. It's not uncommon for victims to avoid court. It had been 10 months since the rape. Rachel was getting her life together and had repeatedly said she was afraid of Marvin. She could have been scared or not prepared to relive it or anxious about testifying and being cross-examined. Those are all reasons victims will avoid court. The hearing was postponed, but then a couple of days after this, the prosecutor and the judge both received letters from Rachel recanting her story. She said what really happened, and it was close to the story that Marvin had put in his facts for the police. She wrote that she had made up the rape accusations because Marvin had turned her down for sex. Rachel said she was in a relationship now with an honest Christian man, and that convinced her she couldn't go through with the false accusations against the oh-so-innocent Marvin. The prosecutor, unable to reach Rachel, ended up dropping the charges. Both of the letters to the prosecution and the judge were postmarked from Little Rock, Arkansas, which is the same postmark as another letter. The family got a second letter from Rachel about a week after the first. In that letter, she wrote that the man she ran off with, Delbert, had gotten a job in Little Rock, and everyone was so nice down there that she was thinking of staying forever. She wrote that Shannon was doing well and adjusting, but she missed her extended family back home. Rachel wasn't sure when they'd be back, but hopefully they'd be up for a visit in the near future. Her family was happy to hear from her, but again, not thrilled that she had run off with some man she didn't know and took Shannon with her. That she moved so far away also stood out to them as out of character, but this letter, like the first one, was in her handwriting. Nothing in the note seemed alarming, like she tried to code some SOS into it. Rachel was 19 at this point, an adult with a baby, and she was free to do what she wanted. The only person who could possibly complain would be Shannon's father, but he had moved out of state himself for work recently, so it's not like Rachel was violating their parenting plan. But his mom kept pushing. Kim called Rachel's family for updates on where Rachel and Shannon were near daily, but the Little Rock letter was the last communication. Then Father's Day came and went without contact, as did Shannon's first birthday. The family was growing concerned, but as far as they knew, Rachel left because she wanted to. A month after Rachel and Shannon were last seen, on July 5th, 1997, Two men were at Oxford Lake in Manistee National Forest. 
Some of the lake is in the national forest, and some of it is along privately owned but undeveloped land. So the national forest and the private property boundary is across the middle of the lake. This is a small, remote lake with one road that leads to it, and it ends in a small boat ramp. The two men, Douglas and Nathan, were getting ready to put their boat into the water when they saw something floating about 100 yards offshore. Using binoculars, they thought they saw a dummy, or maybe that's what they hoped it was, because as the true crime trope goes, it's never a mannequin. They rode out towards the object, but the lake weeds were thick, so they couldn't get very close. They did see feet and were hit with a smell that made them sure this was a human body. They rode back to shore, got in their vehicle, and headed to their cabin to call the police. When the authorities arrived at the lake, they used the men's boat to get out there and see for themselves. They could tell from the boat that this was likely a woman's body, and it had been in the water for a while. The gases of decomposition were what raised it to the surface of the lake against the killer's best efforts to keep it underwater. The body was chained and padlocked to two concrete cinder blocks. The woman's wrists were handcuffed behind her, and her head was wrapped with duct tape that covered her mouth and her eyes, but not her nose. The water in this area was shallow, just around three feet deep, and the bottom of the lake was covered in deep muck. There is more muck than water. Those who go out on the lake have said that when you drop an anchor, it will go and go and go into the muck, almost like there is no solid bottom. In this case, the area under the body was 82 feet deep in that muck. The investigators had to brainstorm how to get the body out of the water. They knew it had been lying at the bottom of the lake for a while, and who knows what kind of evidence was in the mud below. They didn't want to stir up the bottom and disperse and lose any of that. They also didn't want to damage the body, which was not in good shape after being in the water that long. They needed something with enough mesh to let the water through but not much more than that. Someone suggested using the jumping mat of a trampoline. So that's what they did. Divers took the mat out into the lake, pulling up the body plus about one foot down into the muck. All of the physical evidence was immediately sent to the Michigan State Crime Lab to avoid losing or contaminating any forensics. The body was sent to the medical examiner. The cause of death appeared to be drowning, which is generally a ruling of elimination, particularly with a body that has been in the water for this long. 
Basically, a body is found in the water, and there is no other obvious cause of death, so it gets ruled a drowning. If this was a drowning, that meant the victim was alive when she went into the water, chained up and with her eyes and mouth covered in duct tape. What a truly horrible way to die. The news of the discovery of the body was in the papers where Shannon's grandmother, Kim, read about it. She never thought the letters from Rachel made a lot of sense, and she was worried about her. So she immediately wondered if this body could possibly be Rachel's. The description of the woman put her age quite a bit older than Rachel was, but Kim thought it was worth calling anyway, because she knew that when Rachel was a teenager, she had a surgery on her hips that is much more common in older women. Add to that the C-section scar from Shannon's birth, and Kim thought it was possible that a medical examiner looking at Rachel's body would have seen signs that she was older than 19. With Kim's tip, they compared fingerprints and confirmed the body was Rachel's. And when Rachel's family was notified, they immediately asked, where's Shannon? There were no signs of the baby at the lake. They brought out cadaver dogs who indicated on some areas, but a search found nothing. The family told the police about the date and the letters that came after. John or Dilbert or whoever he was, was the last person to see Rachel, so the police really wanted to find him. The problem here was that the family had no idea who he was other than someone who asked Rachel out. He hadn't come to the door when he picked her up, so no one really got a good look at him or really paid that much attention to his car. But they were able to give enough for a basic composite sketch. Of course, the police found the rape case when they did a basic background check on Rachel, so Marvin Gabrion was another early lead. But they knew that he wasn't the person who picked Rachel and Shannon up because Rachel was terrified of him. She would never have gotten into a car with him, let alone with her daughter. So was John somehow an associate of Marvin or an accomplice? Or were they completely unrelated and it was just a coincidence that she went missing two days before this preliminary hearing where she was going to testify against him? The idea that they were not connected didn't seem likely, though, because Rachel sent four letters after she disappeared, and two of those were to exonerate Marvin. It seemed it had to be connected. Marvin lived in a house in the small town of Altona in a predominantly Amish area. When the police approached the house to see if they could speak to Marvin, they noticed smoke was coming from the chimney, which alarmed them because it was July. What would be worth heating up your house in July to burn? These are cops. They're always suspicious. They were worried evidence was being destroyed. They knocked on the door but got no answer. However, in plain sight in the yard, they saw cinder blocks, like the ones used to weigh down Rachel's body. Cinder blocks are not uncommon to have, but they noticed that these had black tar and red paint on them. 
something that the cinder blocks from the lake also had. They did not, at this point, have a warrant to enter the house, but they did speak with neighbors who said they had not seen Marvin in a while, and they certainly did not mind that because he was a bit of a menace to the community. He regularly argued with neighbors, he pulled guns on them, and he was suspected of trying to burn down more than one house after an argument. One person told the police that not only had Marvin not been around in a while, neither had a handyman who sometimes stayed there named John Weeks. John was the same first name Rachel had given for her date the night she and Shannon disappeared. So this is yet another lead and another thing connecting Marvin to this. The police got a search warrant for Marvin's home in large part due to the cinder blocks. And when they arrived, they found Marvin's brother loading up his truck with items from the house. They told him to stop and put everything back so that they could search. Of course, they checked the fire stove for signs of whatever had been burning during their earlier visit, but nothing useful was found. In the house, they also found keys to padlocks, more cinder blocks, and lots and lots of duct tape. Duct tape was Marvin's solution to everything, including hanging up curtains. He just duct taped them to the wall. The padlocks found in the house, the keys, the cinder blocks, and duct tape were all sent to the FBI lab to be compared against what was found in the lake. On the search, they also found a book titled The Perfect Victim, The True Story of the Girl in the Box. This book was an account of 20-year-old Colleen Stan who went missing in 1977 while hitchhiking from Oregon to California. She had been kidnapped by Cameron Hooker, who planned to keep her as a sex slave. Through torture and fear, he managed to get a compliance from Colleen that is like nothing I've ever read before. She was even allowed to visit her family twice in the seven years he kept her, yet she never told them what was going on. They actually thought she was in a cult, and they didn't want to push her away by prying too much. This book went into details about what happened in this case, and the reason it stood out to the investigators was not just the subject matter. It was because it was the only book in the house. Marvin Gabrion owned one book, and it was about how a man broke a young woman down to the point of being his slave. That was not evidence in this murder investigation, but more a little look into Marvin Gabrion as a person. After the lab processed what was the evidence in this murder investigation, they found that the paint and the tar on the cinder blocks at the house were a chemical match to the ones from the lake. They also learned that at least one of the padlock keys in the house fit one of the padlocks on the chains that kept Rachel's body tied down. The issue is that not every lock has a unique key, whether we're talking about a padlock, a house lock, or even a car lock. There are a finite number of combinations of pin heights for keys. Depending on the padlock brand, it can be as few as 3,000 unique keys 
for all of the padlocks they sell. Manufacturers won't send all of the locks that take the same key to the same store or even the same region, obviously. They spread them out. So it would be unlikely for an innocent Marvin to just so happen to have a key that fits a padlock from the crime scene. But it wouldn't be impossible. The duct tape was similar in that there are only so many brands and styles out there to definitively link duct tape at a crime scene to something found in a house. The cinder blocks, those were much stronger evidence. So they found evidence against Marvin, but they had yet to find Marvin. The investigators started looking at some of his known associates, like Wayne Davis, who was there on the night of the rape, and of course, John Weeks, who had lived in his home and had the same first name as Rachel's date. But the authorities could not find them either. As for Wayne Davis, the police spoke with his friend Darlene, who said she had not seen Wayne in five months since February 12th. She knew the exact day because she was over at his house and Marvin was there with him. They made plans for Darlene to come back to pick Wayne up the next morning to bring him to court. He had a hearing for a DUI and expected to go straight to jail afterwards to serve a 90-day sentence. Darlene showed up in the morning on the 13th and Wayne wasn't home. She tried calling him from outside of the house, and when she couldn't get in touch with him, she left. She went back a couple of times that day, and he still wasn't there. A couple of days later, Darlene went back to Wayne's house, and this time she found a note on his door. It said he was worried about getting locked up, and he was also all wrapped up in this rape case against Marvin. It was just too much, so he decided to head out to California. So he supposedly left a note on his door announcing that he was going on the run, a note that anyone could find, including the police. Darlene found the note suspicious. Wayne had planned to go to jail. He even bought extra cigarettes before he went in to tide him over and a puzzle to entertain himself with. We're talking county lockup. He wasn't going to state prison, so these types of things are often allowed. The day before the hearing, he gave no indication of being scared to serve his time. I mean, no one's a fan of jail, but Wayne didn't seem like a flight risk over it. Darlene let herself into Wayne's home, and that confirmed to her that there was something weird going on. He had apparently left without taking any of his stuff, including his army coat that he brought with him everywhere. The only things missing were a microwave and his stereo. No one had seen Wayne since Darlene had last seen him, so the police checked Wayne's bank accounts and they found that none of his money was touched since the day Darlene last saw him several months before. Had Wayne last been seen around the time of Rachel's murder, the police might have thought he was involved in that and on the run with Marvin but his disappearance predated that by months. And now we have the two key witnesses against Marvin, one dead and one missing. And then there's John Weeks. They definitely suspected he was an accomplice and quite possibly 
the person who lured Rachel out of her home that night. That was all but confirmed when the police made contact with his girlfriend, Aileen. They showed her a picture of Marvin, and she identified him as John's friend, but she knew him as a Lance, which was a known alias of Marvin's. As for if John knew Rachel, Aileen said that he might have. In the spring, probably around May or June, she caught John on the phone with a girl named Rachel. She got angry with him, thinking he was cheating, but he said he had called this other girl on Marvin's behalf. Marvin wanted to ask her out, and John was just trying to hook them up. And when asked where John was at the moment, Aileen said she didn't know. John and Marvin had left for Texas on June 22nd. They were going down there to pick up marijuana, and John said they would be gone for about a week and a half. But then he didn't come home. Marvin did, though, and Aileen asked Marvin where John was. Marvin said that he had dropped John off with some friends in Arizona. She said that no one had heard from John since. Okay, so the police had a prime suspect in a murder who they couldn't find. And two of his known associates were also missing. Were they missing with the suspect? Or were they missing because of him? If it was the latter, who knew who else was in danger if Marvin was out there killing witnesses against him? The primary concern was, of course, for Shannon, who was still missing and possibly with Marvin. They needed to find Marvin, which would hopefully lead them to Shannon, and his nephew Mike did give the police a lead on a campsite Marvin used frequently. It was north of Oxford Lake at Hungerford Lake. When the police got out there, Marvin was gone, but his tent was still up, so they hadn't missed him by much. In addition to having his nephew identify the tent as Marvin's, they also found a receipt with his name on it, so they were sure this was his spot. At this campsite, they found another chain, more duct tape, and bolt cutters. They also found a hair clip identified later as consistent to something Rachel owned. And they found a package of silicone nipples for a baby bottle and a diaper. Unfortunately, Marvin was gone, and so was Shannon, if she had ever even been there. The diaper and the nipples could have been from the diaper bag Rachel packed when she left for her date. Not knowing where to look, the investigators decided to look into an alias of Marvin's, Robert Allen. This was not just some random name. It was the name of a friend of Marvin's who, it turned out, had been missing since 1995. Robert was a disabled man who received Social Security disability benefits. He led a somewhat transient life, so it wasn't immediately noticed by family and friends that he had been out of contact longer than usual. Also in 1995, after Robert's family had last heard from him, Marvin Gabrion got an Indiana state driver's license in the name of Robert Allen. He then used it to open a bank account, two post office boxes, and even tried to sell land he had no title for, all under this name, Robert Allen. 
One of the post office boxes was located in Sherman, New York, which is seven hours from Nuego County. And it was the mailing address for delivery of Robert Allen's disability checks. Though Robert hadn't been seen in two years, his checks were faithfully cashed every month. The investigators showed a Marvin's picture to postal workers at the Sherman Post Office, and one confirmed Marvin came in once a month to pick up the mail from a P.O. box. The investigation showed that he then deposited the check into the bank account that he had in Robert's name. Because everything was in Robert's name, no red flags had been raised. The next check, after all of this was discovered, was set to arrive in mid-October 1997. So the FBI staked out the post office. They watched Marvin go into the building and waited until he came back out before approaching him. He tried to run but only made it a few feet before he was stopped and arrested. At the time of his arrest, Marvin was carrying a Virginia driver's license with the name Ronald Lee Strevels, but with his own picture. So now the police were wondering if they had another missing persons case on their hands. But the real Ronald Lee Strevels was soon tracked down. About six weeks before Marvin's arrest, he had answered a help-wanted ad in a newspaper in Indiana. The ad said they were looking for a carpenter. He called the number and made plans to meet at a truck stop not far from Ronald's home for an interview. He identified a picture of Marvin as the man he met with. The interview, according to Ronald, was odd because Marvin didn't just ask about Ronald's work experience or wage expectations. He asked more personal things like the names of Ronald's parents, and he wrote it all down. When Ronald seemed confused about the personal nature of the questioning, Marvin told him all of this information was needed now due to new tax forms. Marvin then told Ronald that he needed to get copies of his driver's license and social security card, which Marvin then photocopied and handed the originals back to him. A few days later, Ronald got a call that he didn't get the job after all. And then Marvin took the information he had and managed to get a Virginia ID. He then used that name and identification to try to buy land in rural West Virginia. If Marvin had resisted the urge to go to the post office to pick up yet another Robert Allen Social Security check, he may have disappeared into the back country of Appalachia under a new name, never to be seen again. Assuming he didn't commit any more crimes, which did seem unlikely, this man seems pathological. But he had to keep getting that money, and therefore he was caught. The most important and saddest thing about all of this uncovering of Marvin's plans to disappear into a new identity was that at no point did anyone see Shannon with Marvin. She wasn't at the job interview in Indiana. She wasn't at the DMV in Virginia. She wasn't at any of the property inquiries in West Virginia. They couldn't find anyone who saw Shannon after she and her mother disappeared. So Marvin was now in custody on federal charges of Social Security fraud, which was giving investigators more time to build the case against him for Rachel's murder, and perhaps even charge him for whatever happened to Shannon, whether it was kidnapping or, at the worst, murder. 
Thanks to some witnesses, they were able to place Marvin at the lake around the time Rachel disappeared, and in one instance, a witness may have even seen Rachel with him. The day after Rachel went out on that date, someone saw two men driving in a pickup truck, and they had a blonde woman matching Rachel's description sitting in between them. One of the men matched the description of Marvin Gabrion, and the other one, John Weeks. That same day, others saw Marvin near the lake with his truck and boat. Later in the week, Marvin and John approached two campers at a campground near the lake. Marvin introduced himself as Lance and asked if they minded if he left his boat at their campsite since there wasn't room to park it at his. They said it was fine. What was odd about this was that later on, while looking for firewood, one of the campers saw Marvin at his campsite. He was standing by the fire with gloves on, even though it was warm out. It surprised this camper to see him there because not only was the campsite not where Marvin said it was, there was plenty of room for his boat. There was no reason for Marvin to park his boat elsewhere unless he didn't want to be seen with it or linked to it. And this was not all. On June 6th, two days after a witness saw the people who were probably Marvin, John, and Rachel at the lake, Marvin's neighbor woke up around 3.30 in the morning to a weird noise. He said he heard a loud bang and he looked out his window he saw Marvin dragging a metal boat up his driveway. When he got to the garage, Marvin pulled out two life vests, some concrete blocks, and a chain. The neighbor then watched as he pulled the boat into the garage and took a grinder to the registration numbers. And again, no one saw Shannon during any of this. All of the evidence pointed towards Rachel being killed the day after she left for that date. So what about these letters that she sent nearly a week later, the ones to the prosecutor, the judge, and even her own family, all postmarked from Little Rock? The investigators believed that Marvin had forced Rachel to write all of those letters before her death. And that is also why he had John ask her to bring Shannon on the date. Did Marvin particularly want to hurt the baby? Probably not. But would Rachel write these letters and comply without fighting back? To protect her daughter, she would. Marvin may not have targeted Shannon, but he also didn't care about her either. So, in the belief of the investigators... He took Shannon to force compliance from Rachel. He then mailed the first letter, first thing, so that it made it to the family home quickly to delay Rachel and Shannon being reported missing. Then he held on to the other three and drove down to Little Rock to mail them. So what's the evidence he went to Little Rock? To be honest, it's pretty thin. It's not like he left a breadcrumb trail of credit card receipts and gas station security footage. But a man came forward to tell the police that in February or March of 2017, 
So around the time Wayne Davis disappeared, Marvin went to him to buy a car. Calling himself Lance again, he specifically told the seller that he needed a car that was solid enough to make it down to Arkansas. Now, if the seller's recollection is accurate, Marvin said this at least three months before Rachel and Shannon disappeared, making it clear to the investigators that Marvin had taken his time to truly formulate a plan for how he was going to carry this out. The thing that delayed him in executing this plan was that Rachel got locked up for that probation violation. He couldn't put anything into action until she got out. And it wasn't long after that that John started contacting her to flirt with her. Marvin Gabron is truly one of the worst human beings I have ever covered. He deliberately and coldly killed anyone who got in his way. He probably killed Wayne to stop him from testifying at the rape trial. He killed Rachel for the same reason. And he probably killed John because he could link him to Rachel's murder. So what about Shannon? Unfortunately, the investigators are treating her case as a homicide. While in custody, Marvin did not have an easy time of it since he was suspected of hurting an 11-month-old baby. One day, he was being taunted and harassed over it, and according to two inmates, Marvin snapped back that he had to get rid of the baby because he had nowhere else to put it. But the search for hard evidence against Marvin in Shannon's presumed death was fruitless. While all of this investigation was going on behind the scenes, Marvin was convicted of social security fraud in July 1998 and given a five-year federal prison sentence. Then he was charged with Rachel's murder, and those would be federal charges as well. Part of the lake where Rachel's body was found is privately owned, and part of it is in the National Forest. Rachel's body was found 200 feet into the forest portion, and a national forest means federal jurisdiction. But proving this was dependent on two additional factors. One, that Rachel died in the lake and wasn't killed and then dumped. To make this case, they pointed at the Emmy's ruling of drowning as the cause of death, as well as the witness who saw Rachel alive with Marvin and John at the lake. The second factor here was drift. If Rachel drowned, but her body could have moved those 200 feet, she technically died on the private property, and it would be state jurisdiction. The investigation, however, showed that that lake had virtually no current, and definitely not one strong enough to move a body that is chained to cinder blocks. The blocks were embedded in the muck at the bottom of the lake, further making this argument a persuasive one. But Marvin would fight this logic and try to get this kicked to state court. You may be wondering why it matters. In fact, most inmates prefer federal time over state prisons since the prisons are often safer and sometimes better funded. The issue wasn't where Marvin would do his time, though. It was about the sentence itself. Michigan does not have the death penalty. The feds do. With the strong case against him and the absolutely torturous death Rachel experienced, and Marvin's history of having people around him go missing, 
he was likely going to get the death penalty if convicted. So getting it kicked to state court would save his life. Marvin cared so much about this that he tried to buy land around Oxford Lake to make it private property. He enlisted the help of a friend who was in lockup with him at the time, but going to get out soon, and gave the guy a stack of papers needed to make the sale. When the friend opened the packet, he saw a drawing of the lake, and it said, body one of three, and a line pointing to three X's at the center of the lake. This friend turned it all over to the authorities. He might be willing to broker a weird real estate deal, but he wasn't going to ignore evidence of a murder. But in spite of a thorough search of the lake, including dredging it, they turned up no further evidence of any bodies. Marvin lost his bid to have this case sent to the state court, and so they moved on to the next issue, which was Marvin's competency. According to Marvin's attorney, he was difficult to communicate with, and testing was done. The government's expert issued a report that basically said Marvin was faking it. He did have some bizarre behaviors, but he was mostly malingering and definitely competent to stand trial. His defense attorney did not request a hearing to challenge the prosecution's report. From my non-expert opinion, it would be hard to imagine Marvin was incompetent to stand trial when he had been able to carry out multiple steps to hide his crimes and obtain a false identification. By the legal standard of what competency is, he wouldn't have been able to do all of that other stuff yet be unable to aid in his own defense. That said, this case did take a few years to go to trial, and there are times when confinement can alter someone's mental state. If you want to hear in-depth coverage of a case that relates to that, check out season two of The Defense Diaries. A defense attorney, Bob Mata, tells about his client who was held in solitary confinement pre-trial and had deteriorating mental health and cognition due to it. But go listen to that after you finish this episode, obviously. I'll leave the name of the show and a link in the description box so you won't forget to go check it out. But back to Marvin Gabrion. His trial started on February 25th, 2002. He was only being tried for the murder of Rachel Timmerman. No charges related to Shannon and no charges related to any of the other missing people. The evidence in those cases was largely circumstantial, with some being stronger cases than others. But for the murder of Rachel, they had evidence upon evidence. That's not to say his attorney didn't bother to try to defend him. They found every gap or hole in the prosecution's case and used it like how they didn't find anything that forensically linked Marvin to Rachel's body or linked Rachel to the truck or the boat. The prosecution had an easy time explaining this since it was weeks before Rachel's body was found, and it was found in water, and even longer before Marvin's things were searched. That's plenty of time for evidence to be washed away or purposely destroyed. Marvin's defense also included him taking the stand, which his attorney advised him not to do. He testified that it was actually John Weeks and another friend named Eddie who had killed Rachel. He said the cinder blocks were from his house because that's where John got them. 
As for Shannon, all Marvin knew was that Eddie had given her to some people in Philadelphia. And then it was time for cross-examination, and we see exactly why his attorney didn't think he should testify. Marvin slipped up. The prosecution was throwing questions at him about the murder and accusing him of killing Rachel. In this line of questioning, the prosecutor asked Marvin if he thought his actions towards Rachel were justified, and Marvin said, and I quote, I think what you did is you forced her to testify in a case against a person, lying in a case which forced her to become the victim to a crime, end quote. That was literally the government's theory of the crime, that Marvin killed her to stop her from testifying. And he's saying, yeah, that's exactly why she got killed. She was being forced to lie against him, and that made her the victim. So how does that motive fit into his story that he had nothing to do with it and John and Eddie did it? It doesn't. Marvin was the only one who benefited from Rachel's murder. This was not a confession, but it was pretty close. Marvin Gabrion was convicted after four hours of jury deliberations. They then moved to the penalty phase. Would it be life in prison or death? The government went hard for that death sentence. They really painted a picture of what Rachel's final moments would have been like, an image I would like to scrub from my brain. They also were able to bring up not just the likelihood that Marvin killed Shannon, but also the other people as well. Though he was not charged for these crimes, the penalty phase often allows in more factors that aren't allowed during the guilt phase. So John, Wayne, and Robert were all brought up. And so were the issues with Marvin and his neighbors. Two people testified that their houses were set on fire after an argument with Marvin. Others testified about him threatening them with guns, including a woman and her two-year-old child. Others accused him of physically or sexually assaulting them. The prosecution was trying to show how dangerous Marvin was to those around him, and they also wanted to show that he continued to be dangerous behind bars. Marvin had taken to writing taunting letters to Rachel's family, threatening letters to people who were on the government's witness list, and he planned an escape. He made dozens of phone calls to Shannon's grandmother, Kim, accusing her of killing the baby. She kept taking his calls in the hopes that he would give her a clue as to where Shannon was, which was the same reason Rachel's family remained open to getting letters from him. But in the end, he gave away nothing. One time, Marvin even impersonated a state senator and made phone calls, trying to get himself transferred to a different jail. He had also been found with homemade contraband weapons while locked up. And if the prosecution didn't convince the court how dangerous Marvin was, Marvin did it himself when he hauled off and punched his attorney in the face. Marvin was immediately removed and placed in another room where he had to watch the proceedings over video. When Marvin was allowed back into the courtroom, he said, quote, I'm sorry to be represented by evil shysters in a kangaroo court in a prostitute evil nation that murders its babies by abortion, and I'll be quiet because I'm forced to just as if I was in Nazi Germany. Thank you, end quote. Usually the prosecution is all by themselves in trying to make a case for aggravating factors, but Marvin was helping them out here. 
Now, after these aggravating factors were presented, Marvin's defense team then tried to undo some of the damage their client did by putting on a pretty robust case of mitigation. They had experts testify to Marvin's pretty awful childhood, which included violence in the household. They said he had multiple head injuries, which is something we do see in serial killers. The testimony mostly pointed to narcissistic features in that Marvin saw people as a means of satisfying his own desires, he had a disregard for the safety of himself and others, and he lacked empathy. In this mitigation phase, Marvin did himself no favors by testifying. He started going on a rant about how he had been depressed since the September 11th attacks, and he would be fine with whatever sentence they decided to give him. And then he slept through the last day of sentencing. The prosecution rebutted the defense's case for mitigation with a neurologist who said there was no evidence Marvin had a brain injury. They even had the driver from one of the car crashes Marvin was in to testify that Marvin had faked his injuries and there was no serious head injury. They also had an expert testify that Marvin was continuing to fake his symptoms. How this was established was through giving a malingering test. I thought this was interesting, so I'm going to take a minute to explain one of these tests. In this test, to see if Marvin was faking, he was shown a picture of a common object. He would then be shown two pictures, one of the object he just saw and one of something else. He had to choose which one he had just seen. They do this with 50 objects, so the top score is 50. It's a very basic short-term memory test that was developed initially for people who had severe injuries. We are talking about traumatic brain injuries, burst aneurysms, and people coming out of a coma. The score was usually 44 or 45 among that population. So to actually score below that, you are in a hospital or a full-time nursing facility. And that's why it makes for such a good test for malingering. If someone is functioning day in, day out and score low, you know they're faking. But they don't know that because this test is just mixed in with the rest of the evaluations. Marvin was given the test three times in a row with the same pictures. He got a 32 the first time, then a 26, and then a 21. He did worse the more he saw the pictures, which is not how memory works. And this was a strong indicator that he was exaggerating his symptoms at the very least, if not entirely making them up. In the end, the jury did acknowledge Marvin's abuse of childhood and personality disorders as mitigating factors, but they said they didn't come close to outweighing the aggravating ones. Marvin Gabrion was given a sentence of death. Four months later, and five years after Rachel's body was found, in July 2002, another body was found, this time in Twinwood Lake. The location was significant as it was less than a mile from Marvin's childhood home, and the victim, who had been in the water for a while, had been chained to cinder blocks and thrown into the lake. The body was later identified as Wayne Davis. The investigators had also learned in the course of their investigation that Marvin had sold a microwave and stereo at a consignment shop after Wayne disappeared. 
and the serial numbers on those items matched the ones missing from Wayne's house. And here was his body, found so similar to Marvin's other known victim, and though he has never been charged, Marvin Gabrion remains the prime and only suspect in Wayne's murder. As happens with death penalty cases, a long appellate process began almost immediately. One argument made was that Marvin should not have gotten the death penalty since the crime was committed in a non-death penalty state, even though it was on federal land. While the courts didn't agree with him on that entirely, they did feel the jury should have been told that Marvin would not have faced the death penalty in state court. They said it was a strong mitigating factor that could have swayed the final decision. Would a jury really have given the death penalty just because he was within 200 feet of a jurisdictional boundary? The appellate court said the jury should have been able to weigh that, so Marvin was granted a new sentencing hearing. But then in 2013, a higher court overturned that decision, so his death sentence was reinstated. Marvin's appellate attorneys continue to file appeals, very concerned with his competency. His attorneys have said that while he is willing to speak with them, he doesn't talk about the case. They say that he is pretty delusional and only wants to talk about whatever is going on in his head. Marvin lost his most recent appeal, and while he remains on death row, his chances of execution at the moment are very slim. Federal death sentences are currently under a moratorium, so it at least won't be carried out within the next few years. And honestly, it depends a lot on the president and who the president puts in as attorney general. We definitely saw that when I covered the Bobby Joe Stinnett case. Her killer was on federal death row. Only three people had been executed by the federal government in something like 40 years. And then we had a pro-death penalty president who appointed a pro-death penalty attorney general. And then there were 13 executions in six or seven months. They only stopped when a new president took office. So if we get a new president in the next election, who knows what will happen with the federal death row inmates. I know people don't like politics to mix with their true crime, but sometimes they can't give you the full context without at least bringing it up because the people who enact the laws happen to be politicians. I did a federal inmate lookup on Marvin, who is now 69 years old. He is in the federal prison in Springfield, Missouri, and that is notable because that's not where death row is. That's in Indiana. The Springfield prison is a medical facility, though due to privacy laws, we do not know why he's there. Robert Allen, John Weeks, and Shannon Verhag remain missing. If you have any information on any of these cases, please call the Michigan State Police, Nuego County Post, at 231 652 1661. And if your information is about Shannon specifically, you can also call the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1 800 The Lost. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for. <laughs>